Welcome back to the show. It's February 2021. My name is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. I've got two of my co-hosts here with me. Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt University. Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado. We're also excited to be joined by our guest for the night, Dr. Jennifer Lane from Gillette. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. And before we get into the material, a couple housekeeping items. First up, a uh, long-awaited name change. We've made the decision to keep it simple, and we will no longer be known as the JPO Podcast. We will, from here on out, be Peds Ortho, or the Peds Ortho Podcast, the Peds Ortho Show. If you, uh, hopefully, are already subscribed and following this show, uh, you don't need to change anything. The name should just automatically change in your podcast feed. But if you're searching for us, just look for Peds Ortho. As our regular listeners know, we've been branching out beyond JPO, and that's the reason for the name change. We've been covering annual meeting material. We've been uh, covering random bonus episodes with various content, and we've also been looking at other journals, and we want to keep expanding the content we bring you going forward, so we want a general name that reflects that. Uh, It is certainly nothing against the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics. It's still our favorite. It's still going to be a huge amount of the content on the show because it brings such high-quality literature every month, but there will be more. I do want to send a thanks out to the audience and all of the name suggestions we got. Some were very amusing. Uh, I think my personal favorite was the Jedi training program. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that one didn't become the final uh, selection. And speaking of random bonus content, I uh, want to give a shout out to an upcoming episode uh, from the POSNA Quality, Safety, and Value Initiative, or QSVI. It's a group that does some great work that sometimes seems like a little bit of a black box. So uh, hopefully it'll be a fun panel discussion to really see in more concrete terms what that group is doing um, and how it might affect our lives as POSNA members and pediatric orthopedic surgeons. Next up, speaking of the annual meeting, it's coming up in a couple months in Dallas, and we are going to be bringing you some of that content in the intervening months, so stay tuned for that. And I also want to make you aware of a new podcast that I've been working on with a great team. It's called Peds Sports. Uh, It has been sponsored by a generous grant from POSNA to help get it off the ground. The first episode is out, and a couple more will be coming out every week or two for the next month or two. So uh, please check it out. We hope it'll be applicable for all the PD pods who are taking care of sports patients and also for the, uh, the adult surgeons who are taking care of kids sometimes. We're going to do our best to bring you some good content and keep you up to date on that literature. Now, lastly, I do want to give a special thank you to one of my senior partners, Dr. Andy King, who's been a guest on the podcast before and is well known to anyone out there doing spine. He is one of my mentors, and through his endowed chair here at LSU, he has generously helped us keep this podcast sustainable with some funding which makes it possible for us to keep bringing you this material. So thank you to Dr. King. He's a a real living legend down here at Children's Hospital of New Orleans and LSU and really in the uh, ped spine world after 40 years of practice and mentoring. Yes, thank you, Dr. King. Thank you. No more long nights of editing, right? (laughs) (laughs) And next up for a few more announcements, uh, specifically some tidbits from the crowd. I'm going to hand things over to Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. Got to get used to saying that. (laughs) 
You're calling my section tidbits now, Carter? Is that what it's going to be? It's official. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to um, let all our listeners know that we appreciate all the feedback we're getting from you guys and keep sending it our way, whether it's suggestions about uh, the different content that we're trying and what you're liking or not liking. Uh, we are very receptive to that. Um, and then I do want to highlight some of the comments we've had. Um, so again, you can send, you can always uh, hit us on Twitter or you can send emails to uh, pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. Um, I do want to highlight uh, Sean Waldron from uh, Oshner Hospital for Children uh, in New Orleans. Uh, he made the great suggestion um, that we should include references to all of the papers that we uh, that we discuss uh, in the show notes. So this will be coming up and you'll be able to find that in the show notes wherever you download uh, the episodes. Um, he also mentioned that uh, all the new links for the different podcasts that Carter mentioned, the QSVI, the Pete Sports, it'd be helpful to have links for those because um, we want it to be easy to find. And um, Sean pointed out that it maybe was not. Um, also want to thank listener Kyle Simmons, who gave us some uh, name suggestions. And um, although we're sticking with the Peds Ortho podcast, he did point out that the acronym is POP. And so um, I am pleased to announce that uh, Jim Sanders last month was our very first pop star and Jennifer Lane <laughs> this month is our new pop star. And that's just going to keep us trendy for the young listeners out there. Um, so, <laughs> so thanks for that, Kyle. <laughs> and then um, uh, lastly, uh, Sukhan Shah um, from... Uh, uh, AI DuPont uh, did give us some valuable feedback, just that he really appreciated having the guests stay on to get their uh, their take on the different articles that we discussed and um, liked having the guests there for the lightning round, probably because um, they actually have some wisdom to impart that maybe <laughs> the three of us or four of us typically do not. So Dr. Lane, we're glad that you're going to be sticking around for that part to uh, level us out a little bit. Um, so keep sending the suggestions our way and uh, look forward to hearing from you all. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Craig. So, Dr. Lane, as our second pop star, um, we're, we're, we've decided to do a small segment before the official article, which is get to know our pop star. So um, your pop quiz question is, what is your favorite surgical instrument? Ooh, as an orthopedist, I'm just going to have to say the osteotome. Excellent. Yes. And then also, well, I'm going to go with two. And then also as a pediatric orthopedist who you know, does a lot of teaching and works with residents, I think we all get pretty good with using a freer and a suction tip to help move things along <laughs> and to do things safely. Yes. The ultimate teaching tool. The universal instrument. <laughs> I was going to, can I ask a quick follow-up as to what is your favorite osteotome? Are you like a curved or straight? Are you like the big ones? Or are you more of a small osteotome sort of person? Or anything that's not dull, maybe. Yeah, that's my. <laughs> that's, that's never an option. Sorry. Was <laughs> key, and then probably quarter inch curve. Ooh, like it. Excellent. Um, and then second question: uh, What what's most likely to be playing in your OR? What's your favorite soundtrack for the OR? This is this is not very exciting. I have to say that my voice is quiet enough in the OR that it's really hard for people to hear me over music without yelling. So I would say oftentimes we don't have a lot of music playing until maybe the end, just because people have trouble hearing me. Although I do operate a lot with my colleague, Ali Schiffern, who do a lot of bilateral procedures here, a lot of semels. And she really likes 80s, 90s, R&B kind of pop. And so I, I have a real appreciation for that as well. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Um, and then last question, kind of on a more serious note, um, who would you say has been the most influential for you in your career as a pediatric orthopedist? 
Oh, there's, there's so many different mentors along the way. I would say that um, one of the earliest pediatric ortho mentors that stands out to me was uh, Steve Skinner, who at the time was uh, working at Children's Hospital of Oakland. And he pulled me aside as a, a third year resident who thought that she was going into sports. And he pulled me aside and he said, I know you think you're going into sports, but I can see that you really love this and I really want you to consider it. And he was right. That's I love great. it. And then I kind of opened my eyes to thinking about going to other fields and here I am. So, but there have been many, many mentors along the way, but that conversation really stands out to me as a turning point. Yeah. It's cool how somebody that just believes in you can change, change your path. Well, cool. Well, we'll um, go forward with the the main event now. So this month, we're going to highlight a paper from JAOS um, that's entitled Demographics and Clinical Presentation of Early Stage Leg Calf Perthes Disease, a Prospective Multicenter International Study. So uh, this paper is by Dr. Lane and her colleagues in the International Perthes Study Group. So just to kind of start off with, um, I think most of our listeners are familiar with IPSG and kind of the power of such a big prospective database. Um, but tell us a little bit about how this specific study came about. Yeah, so first of all, I'd like to kind of thank my co-authors and the IPSG. I mean, it's really been an important experience to me. And uh, this was this article is definitely uh, a team effort. So the, the IPSG first got together in 2012. We were brought together by Harry Kim, and the Perthes group was modeled off of the original Perthes study groups developed by uh, Tony Herring. And we were brought together as interested parties in uh, having research-based answers and better evidence for our patients with Perthes, especially patients who were in the early stages of disease presenting uh, between ages 6 and 11 and studying them prospectively. As we started enrolling patients from multiple institutions, we thought it would be important to take an early look at this database and this data that we were collecting prospectively to look at who is the Perthes patient of today. You have all these kind of classic descriptions of Perthes patients of, you know, well, they tend to be boys. We, we know that, but also that they tend to be small for age. They tend to have motor expressive personalities or be really high energy and that they have a, a high chance they had a smoke exposure in the home. You know, we have all, a number of different associations. So, but a lot, a lot of those associations are based on studies that were done in the 70s or maybe as recently as 20 years ago, but some of that information is somewhat out of date. And so we thought, you know, in the setting of a global pediatric obesity epidemic, uh, a global, thank God, decline in uh, smoking, and then also in just increased attention to uh, pain and uh, kind of behavioral considerations with this new sort of social environment or new kind of landscape, what does the Perthes patient of today look like? Layered onto that is we have studies now coming out of the UK saying that the Perthes incidence is declining. So maybe, you know, Perthes looks a little bit different now. Um, and then also just from a clinical standpoint, in addition to the demographic standpoint, uh, you have these classic descriptions of kids presenting really uh, with, a, with a painless limp. But I mean, for those of us who are seeing patients in the clinic with Perthes, many of them are not painless. It's pretty rare that you have a painless Perthes patient. So we thought it'd be important to, to look into that as well. 
all of that sort of kind of the changing landscape, also the fact that we were prospectively enrolling all these patients from centers across the globe, made us realized that we had this fantastic opportunity to report on what the Perthes patient of today looks like. That's awesome. And I think that that really gives a great overview. And I'd like to drill down into a couple of specific topics if we can. That sort of list, that classic presentation of Perthes that you mentioned, that's something that I feel like gets drilled into our heads as residents and, and even fellows. And then you start to realize that some of these things are actually not entirely true um, or may, may have been true in the past, as you say, but aren't true in today's environment. And so I think the first thing I want to point out is um, your findings about that the majority of kids do have have a painful limp. It's not an insignificant amount of pain either. Uh, if you could kind of share with us what you guys found about the, the number of kids that are actually taking pain medications um, and, and the number of kids who are actually missing school for this, because it's really, uh, it's a bigger social burden than I think I certainly realized before I read this paper, um, but definitely correlates with what I've seen clinically too. Well, I agree. I think that this is absolutely the key takeaway finding of this paper and that I, I really don't think that description of the painless limp is very relevant to this population. We found really only a very small percentage presented with a painless limp. I think about 15% could be described as having a painless limp. But we found that 84% of our patients were presenting with pain or pain and limp. That's most. And then we had a 63% of patients or their family members reported that the patient was taking medications for pain. And of those, 65% were taking uh, medications at least once per week. That's pretty frequent. I mean, as a parent, when I think about how often I give my kids medication for pain, I mean, it's it's not very often at all. These kids are really affected by pain and they're getting a fair amount of medication for it. And then also what was really striking is that we, we found that 30% of kids were missing school at least once per month. And uh, also 20% were, or sorry, 22% were uh, missing school at least once per week. So this really has a huge social cost and is really a, a big burden on families and I think um, was pretty eye-opening for us. Certainly, there's room to delve more deeply into this with future study, but I think this, this information can also be really validating to families and to patients where if they look online and they see that this is supposed to be painless and their kid is staying home from school once a week and that also forces one of the parents to stay home from work once a week. If we can tell them that we're seeing that in other patients, I think that that's, that's really important in the clinical setting. Absolutely. One of the things that, that was interesting to me is that, that insinuating that those patients have been missing school more than once a month kind of shows the persistence of this pain. So these kids are actually in pain for a period of time before they're diagnosed. And that's something that goes to show that we're, we're not so good at diagnosing this quickly, or they don't necessarily get appropriately referred early. I think that's, that's really true. And we see a lot of kids who presented three months prior somewhere to an urgent care and had a negative knee radiograph and then were sent home and told to take some Tylenol. And then they limped around for a while and then eventually got that diagnosis of Perthes. So then the second thing I kind of wanted to drill into is this secondhand smoke thing. Again, that's on that list of things that just gets sort of drilled into our heads. And, you know, as you say, less and less people in the world are smoking. This paper showed a lot 
lower rate of secondhand smoke exposure in kids with perthes than had previously been demonstrated. And so, you know, do you think the smoking thing is sort of a red herring and that that's really not, has nothing to do with the potentially the coagulation issues or whatever potential etiology that may contribute to for perthes? Or do you think this is potentially related? What are your thoughts on that? I know it's a lot of conjecture right now, but it was interesting to me to see that the incidence was lower. I have a few takeaways. And and this was certainly not a study that delved in deeply to the smoking history in these families. I mean, but we did ask if they had a, a smoker in the home. And, you know, there are multiple reports in the literature showing that there is an increased risk of perthes if you have exposure to smoke. And, and then also not even just tobacco smoke, but also like having a wood-burning stove in the home. And so I, I don't necessarily think that this study uh, refutes that, but I think that perthes is very multifactorial. And so I think that a lot of us think that patients are possibly predisposed for some reason or another, and then there are a number of environmental factors at play. And, and so I think that we are seeing a decline in kids being exposed to smoke worldwide, which, which is great. And we're also starting to see studies of a decline in Perthes incidence, right? So, I mean, maybe, maybe that's one of the explanations for a decline in incidence of Perthes. I don't think that our study shows that smoking is not a risk factor, but I think that we're just not seeing it reported as much in our Perthes populations that we had in previous studies that have shown even rates of smoking in the Perthes population or smoke exposure in Perthes populations of like 60 and 70 percent. Ours was down to, I believe, 19 or high teens. Right. Yeah, it's a pretty striking difference. And that does make sense. And, and obviously, it is a very complex no, definitely no causation here, but very interesting. And of course, a very good thing that less and less people are being exposed in that way. Let's talk about a little bit about um, obesity. Obviously, we're all dealing with an obesity epidemic. And what's interesting about such an international study group is that it shows, you know, I mean, obesity is on the rise really worldwide. Um, and so it's really not an American phenomenon. And more of the Perthes kids were overweight than I think I expected, because again, that classic historical teaching is that it's a thin kid. And a lot of these kids were overweight. And we've got some literature that suggests that outcomes are worse in kids that are obese with Perthes. So, you know, where do you see that going? You know, maybe is the incidence of Perthes decreasing, but maybe the severity is going to worsen because the kids are bigger? You know, what do you think this finding of, of I think it's about 30% of kids that were overweight, what do you think that tells us about what we're dealing with for future treatment? What we found was that uh, certainly our Perthes patients did not have a lower BMI percentile than the population norms. And we know that the, the population is changing. We focused especially with respect to the BMI data, we focused especially on the, the U.S. population and then also a population from India, in part because we had dedicated BMI percentile charts for those two populations. And those are also our two biggest kind of country groups. India is also having a, a pediatric obesity problem as well. And there's a lot of literature on that. But we did find that in our Perthes cohort that we studied, that the rates of being overweight or obese was about the same in our Perthes population as what we're seeing in the, the more global population data for those countries. There are also two somewhat recent studies that showed a higher rate of obesity in Perthes patients than in the normal populations. It was a study out of Texas and also out of Southern California. 
that they show that the obesity rates were much higher than population norms, and that's not what we found. Well, one of the takeaways from this is that if you have a child walk into your clinic with groin, thigh, or knee pain, and they're overweight, Perthes is not ruled out, you know, in the same way that an older child who is thin and has groin, thigh, or knee pain, Skiffy is not ruled out. It still needs to be on that differential. And then I think that we also have work to do to better understand uh, why these patients with an elevated BMI tend to do worse with their Perthes care, why their diagnoses are later you know, is the, out, is the outcome worse because they have greater forces across the hip? Or is it worse because of that late diagnosis? But I think there's, there's plenty of work to be done. That's a great point. And this paper really addresses so many of those ideas that we have about the presentation. And I think that's the strength is that um, we all need to keep an eye out and keep Perthes in the back of our mind for a diagnosis, even if the kid doesn't fit that perfect picture that we all you know, can, can look up. I think so, that picture should probably change. Yeah. Being a, a normal a normal weight kid or a normal BMI kid, maybe still slightly short statured. We didn't really look at that in the study, but there are you know, numerous studies saying that they're kind of skeletally immature or slightly shorter for age, but also that they're presenting with pain. Um, just kind of final wrap up. What do you think you're, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but anything else that you would want to say as kind of a take-home point from this paper for the orthopedist out there who treats Perthes occasionally, doesn't maybe see it as much, um, or, or somebody out in the general population who just wants to be sure they're up on, on top of, of their game? Like Perthes itself, which is very heterogeneous, the presentation can be very heterogeneous and not to get just that classic picture stuck in your mind. And then I think also when you meet those families in clinic and they're really struggling with it, you can provide them with this information and hopefully that will kind of help them understand that what they're experiencing is normal. I think also as, as orthopedic surgeons seeing Perthes, we probably need to pay more attention to the pain that these kids are having. So that in um, kind of parent conferences or Q&A sessions, a lot of parents bring up the trouble that their children have with sleep. You think about if your kids aren't going to school, they're having a lot of pain, they're also not sleeping, that's disrupting the whole family life, right? So I think that there's a lot of work to be done to better understand this, I think involving like patient-reported outcomes and pain interference, but then also in our treatment of these patients, even the ones that we're just treating symptomatically, to help the, the whole family deal with this and the real kind of social burden and the psychosocial cost. Absolutely. All great points. Thank you so much for that. Well, well, if it's okay with you, can the peanut gallery jump in for a few oh, things about that? No, uh, you're not allowed to talk. Too? All right. Sorry. You're Carter the quarterback for the Greg, week. You, you, are, you are not allowed. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I'll go ahead and mute us both. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, Dr. Lane, a few, a few questions. If you're not sworn to secrecy, are there any spoiler alerts you can give us for sort of the next steps for the, uh, the Perthes study group? Mm. Um, you're not worthy. She's, it too, she's deciding. She's deciding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's your clearance Wait, level? Dr. Lane, do it, do it for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> not for Carter. <laughs> The Perthes study group is interested in answering some of the big questions about Perthes, and especially the ones that can be answered with prospective clinical study. And one of the major questions that is out there for us to struggle with in literature with, with one of our biggest populations of Perthes is, you know, 
operative versus non-operative management of six and seven-year-olds that are presenting in the early stages of disease. Perthes, as we all know, takes a long time to study meaningfully to have the appropriate number of patients and have the appropriate duration of follow-up, but we are, we are working on having an, an answer for you on that. Can we um, keep it a little bit anecdotal then um, with you as our sort of resident ex- expert for the night? Can you tell us a little bit about your practice? Like, let's say that seven-year-old comes in with a you know, lateral pillar B, or sort of, do you have a line in your practice where, where you're going to surgery at this point? So I would say that over time, I have uh, probably become somewhat more aggressive with six and seven-year-olds who are presenting in the early stage of disease. If they are presenting early, and again, they're at least age six at onset, uh, I do tend to get a perfusion MRI. Uh, so a, you know, MRI study with and without gadolinium, which then gets digitally subtracted to get a better sense of uh, the perfusion. And if that femoral head looks pretty involved, over half of the head is involved, then I do tend to recommend surgery. And uh, I typically recommend just a mild varicization. Gotcha. I still am, uh, I still treat the less than six population pretty conservatively. I think there are uh, some people out there who are leaning a little bit more surgical potentially, but I, I think that in general, most of us are still treating the less than six-year-old symptomatically. And so that five-year-old who comes in and has the painful limp and is staying home from school one night a week and is not as skinny as we thought and doesn't look like the netter's picture, uh, what is your sort of non-operative management plan there? Are you restricting weight-bearing, just physical therapy? Is there a role for braces in your practice at this point? two things. We didn't study anyone under six in this study. So I can't say what your typical five-year-old presented <laughs> and I could officially <laughs> to be continued, right? And we can probably have that information for you hopefully soon. But I, um, I tend to slow them down a little bit. I don't typically, in my practice, don't aggressively brace or aggressively restrict weight-bearing. I try to keep them out of like excessive running and jumping activities. I ask them not to buy a trampoline. I tell them this is probably not the summer to sign up for soccer. How about swimming? And I have them, you know, keep an eye on range of motion and work on some gentle range of motion exercises. And then I follow them along for their range of motion. And then also over time for, you know, signs of physial arrest or trochanteric overgrowth. Perfect. I just wanted. I just wanted to. I know that uh, asking about Perthes treatment is a whole can of worms, so I was not going to do that. But Carter luckily did. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to thank you open. for the. <laughs> I just wanted to thank you because um, I, I think your point about validating the parents' feelings is especially key. For instance, I've I've noticed that the the few Perthes patients I've seen um, have all been pretty symptomatic and limited. And um, luckily, I haven't told them, you know, just tough it out. You're going to be fine. You shouldn't be having pain. But um, I did think to myself, what, am I seeing a different variant here than everyone else is seeing? Like, do I need to treat this differently? Um, so it's nice to know that um, that that's not just a, an obscure outlier. And uh, everyone else is actually seeing painful limping patients, too. So thank you for that. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. My treatment recommendations are purely what I do in my practice. That's not like the official statement of the IPSG or anything. You heard it here. There's IPSG a lot of variability in the IPSG, which gives us also a lot of room to study. Well, if you're still involved in the study group after speaking for the whole group like that, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's great. I agree. That that really matches my clinical experience more than sort of the, the classic description. So I, I thought this was a really cool study. Um, 
Craig, you want to take us into the lightning round? Okay, lightning round. I think last time we were less lightning and um, more, I don't know what we'd be. Going around. A long, a long version of that, yeah. That's great. Um, so uh, if, if no one has anything in particular to add, uh, don't feel like you have to comment. Um, but the first paper I want to review is called Incidents of Symptomatic Pediatric Tarsal Coalition in Olmstead County. Uh, this is a JBJS 2020 lead author is Taylor Jackson and Todd Milbrand is a senior author. And this is from your neighbors down the road, Dr. Lane um, at Mayo, Rochester, Minnesota. So this was a population-based study in Olmstead County, and they were trying to determine the true incidence of symptomatic tarsal coalitions in the pediatric population. So they had patients 18 years or younger between 1966 to 2018. So almost half a century there, actually more than half a century. So the uh, the question for you guys is, what do you think the incidence was? So the number of symptomatic kids per year out of the population that presented with a symptomatic coalition. Out of the entire population. Yeah, you can do this as a percentage, maybe. That'd be the easiest way to do it. Okay. Percentage of kids that have symptomatic tarsal coalition. Um, I'd like 0.1%, please. 0.1. I'll Any go other with guesses? 0.5%. Okay, 0.5. Mm. Are they high? I'm going to go 0.05%. She's heading the right direction. It's even less. It's 0.0035%. That's 3.5 per 100,000 annually. A couple other notes. So the incidence peaked between the ages of 10 and 14. It's roughly the same for males and females. So those are the ages you're most likely to see someone present to your clinic. And then if you take the population estimates that maybe a pre- there's a prevalence of 2%, 2% of patients in the total population have these. Um, if you were to, I just did some quick back of the en- envelope math, but essentially only 3.2% of the people with coalitions are actually developing symptoms between year zero to 18. Hmm. So if you take those, those two numbers and put them together, which I thought is incredible because if you identify these patients with coalitions, we're almost always assuming that we're going to do some conservative management and then maybe they'll fail and they'll end up needing surgery. But it's amazing that only 3.2% of those actually presented as having symptomatic coalitions. The reason I picked that is yes. because having trained with Dr. Mubarak in San Diego, <laughs> uh, one in every three children that walks into clinic has a symptomatic tarsal <laughs> coalition. So I was interested to see what the actual number um, in, in the, the population was. So Well, they, they missed them all because they were all traveling to San Diego. For yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> They're all migrating to Southern California. <laughs> all, the, all the snowbirds from yes. <laughs> Okay, that is so, a fantastic database that they have. I wish yeah, oh, Ramsey and so cool. counties just a little bit north has a database. It's an impressive study. Um, I was just wondering if it's you know rural Minnesota, if it's going to be like kind of the natural history Iowa studies where you just assume that everyone's tough and does fine. So maybe that's why the incidence is so low. They're all <laughs> they're all just toughing it out and don't pay attention to their fused feet. So the next study is called Part-Time Abduction Bracing in Infants with Residual Acetabular Dysplasia. Does compliance monitoring support a dose-dependent relationship? Uh, this is on, uh, from JPO 2021. Lead author is Ishan Swaroop, who is now at UCSF, and uh, Woody Sankar, um, from CHOP, and the study was done at CHOP. So this is a prospective study looking at the change in acetabular index for infants around six months of age with hip dysplasia, where they're treating with a uh, semi-rigid brace. It looked like uh, the rhino uh, brace. And so the question for you all 
is really just the question of the study. Do you think compliance was associated with an improvement in S-tabular index? So they used a heat sensor and they're looking for an association between the hours in the brace and how much the AI improved. Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope, yes, they would then support my current practice. <laughs> Julia? Well, I was also going to say, I hope yes. And and for the same reason, we had a very heated debate this morning in our group about um, whether there is a dose-dependent thing, because some people just wean, some people just go cold turkey off of the Pavlix, some people go cold turkey off a of brace, and other people brace for, for a longer period of time. So um, I would hope that there is a dose-dependent relationship. Carter, you think uh, there is? I need to recuse myself because I, I read and discussed this article recently, but I, I love this study. I love studies okay. that tell me that... Uh, that what you're I doing is okay. Doing, yeah, exactly. But th- this is the second study they published on this concept uh, of sort of longer-term weaning of a semi-rigid abduction brace after the Pavlik, and I, I think it's, it's brilliant. So I've, I've been following them with interest. Yeah, and so um, the first study you mentioned just showed that the two groups, bracing or not, the AIs improved more in the group that was braced. So this one did show, uh, so interesting, there was only 26 patients enrolled in this, um, which would seem fairly underpowered, but uh, they checked compliance data and images then at one year old, and the average brace was worn for only 11 and a half hours, but the average hours in the brace per day did correlate with AI improvement. The correlation was modest, so they point out that the correlation coefficient was only 0.36, suggesting there's probably many other factors at work, but there was a dose-dependent relationship. And I I would expect that it probably gets stronger as you have more patients on on a population level. But yes, you can all keep feeling okay about prescribing the braces. Um, This should not change your practice in that way. And then the last one uh, is the medial elevation osteotomy for late presenting and recurrent infantile blount disease. I apologize to the author if I butcher your name. So it's uh, Peter, I believe it's Mare, and Leonard Charles Mare from Gray's Hospital in South Africa. Um, and this is the second uh, recent article that they put out about management of Blount's disease around this age group. Found them both pretty fascinating, but we're going to highlight this one. So this is in the most recent JPO. It's a retrospective review of their results of their surgical protocol. And the protocol is around this late presenting age. So pre-adolescence, they're doing a medial elevation osteotomy a lateral epipsiodesis to shut down the physis, and then a proximal tibia osteotomy. They're generally doing a dome uh, if it's still required, and then 80% of cases it was. Uh, so my question for you all, uh, it's a lot of surgery, tough problem, very tough patient population. Uh, what difficulty did you anticipate that they most commonly saw? What's their most common? I would guess recurrence, but if you're asking, I bet it's something more interesting. <laughs> well, they're shutting down the physis, Carter. So, I mean, theoretically not recurrence, but yeah, I mean, any, any other guesses, compartment syndromes? Yeah, I, would, I mean, I would worry uh, in the acute setting about a compartment syndrome. I mean, that's a, a lot of surgery right there. Yeah. And then I would think um, less acutely, I agree with Carter, I'd, I'd worry about recurrence. So um, they, they had good or excellent outcomes in uh, 75% of patients, uh, which is pretty remarkable, poor in about 25. Um, three of those were overcorrected. 13 were still, in, uh, were still in varus. And the reason they failed was a failed lateral epipsiodesis. And this is something that I thought was so interesting because I, I just think that epipsiodesis, we all check off as like the most, one of the more general things that we do. And we think we're all probably pretty good at them. 
Um, but in this population, they fail quite a bit. Um, and then the result is uh, odds, right? You get a high amount of recurrence and poor alignment resulting. They amazingly only had one vascular injury and one uh, intraarticular fracture. But um, this is something that anecdotally, one of my my partners had told me that she had seen, this was at UNC, um, Dr. Vergun. When I had a case like this and I had to do a lateral pitsiodesis, she was like, don't take that lightly. Like, make sure you do something. And I even put fixation across it. And I think it's because they're so large and they're in so much varus that even if you scrape out the chondrocytes, there's maybe enough tension there where it spreads and it doesn't really form a bar. Um, but this study would seem to kind of back that up that you should maybe consider doing something else. They didn't really try anything else uh, or anything that they can publish on that's going to uh, remedy this. But I think it should be in the forefront of your mind if you're doing this procedure that um, you need to do a really good lateral pipsiodesis and consider some way of augmenting that. The other major takeaway they had was consider the 3D morphology. They saw some medially facing defects and then some that are more posterior medial facing. And one of their intraarticular fractures that they hydrogenically created was they had a very posterior medial defect and they did more of a, a medial elevation and essentially just exited into the tibial plateau. Um, so uh, 3D recons uh, would potentially be helpful when you're planning how you're going to do your osteotomy to raise the plateau. Did they comment on their pipsiodesis techniques? I believe it was like a perk. And then they switched to a, like they just drilled and threaded. And then they switched to a femister like halfway through. Uh, but they couldn't do like a sub-analysis. wasn't enough to really tell if one of those was associated. But that was their proposed remedy to it, to take a chunk of bone and flip it around on the periphery and see if that's going to help. Um, I think it's a little too early to tell. But there wasn't any fixation across it's interesting. So even after the correction with the the dome osteotomy and the medial plateau elevation, they still had enough varus to potentially be distracting that that lateral face. I guess just with lateral knee laxity, maybe they yeah, I think, kept seeing some distraction across that physis. I mean, that's that's the big X factor. Unless you're really stressing the knee when you're determining your final alignment, uh, they could stand up and put weight on it, and they go back into varus because of that laxity. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's a great point. You wonder also, I mean, with the, the amount of surgery at the knee, if the epipsiodesis seems kind of minor in comparison and maybe didn't get the same degree of attention as it would if that were the only procedure at the time. Mm. You can also see that you worry about disrupting everything else that you'd already done with the plateau elevation and the osteotomy. Right. Yeah. They maybe don't pay as as much attention to it, but uh, word of warning, um, this is the largest series and um, that was their biggest issue. So if you are attempting this, pay close attention to your pipsiodesis technique and pour back because we're all wondering. <laughs> and these are, these are great papers. If, if you haven't looked at them and you're going to do this, these papers out of this group, just have some really impressive uh, x-rays that might give you some courage going into some of these uh, medial plateau elevations. And they'll be in the show notes, right, Julia? Links. That's right. <laughs> All right. Um, up next, we've got an article from Spine Deformity, and this one is out of Greece, and it's called Can We Predict the Behavior of the Scoliotic Curve After Bracing in AIS? So I guess we can uh, excuse Drs. Sanders and Lane if you guys don't want to participate in this, this spine well, they nonsense. Need to, they need to guess because then it's just me. <laughs> uh, vastly um, uneducated guess. Though. I'm going to say we can predict, Carter. Next question. Julian and right, I have our dartboards here. And we'll yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so this was a, uh, 25 year cohort 
uh, and they'd, they'd reported on it previously, but it was like 1978 to 93, and then they had another 25 years of follow-up on all the patients. And they found, like you'd expect, after you stop bracing, the curves tend to lose a little bit of correction. Um, but was, what was interesting is most of the factors that you'd expect did not predict progression, like curve type, curve severity, timing of bracing, duration of bracing, all that stuff. And they really just found one thing that was a, a decent predictor of progression. So, can anyone read so, my mind? <laughs> so, sorry. The, I would not have guessed this, by the way. Oh, goodness. Uh, name of parent. Name of parent is correct, yes. <laughs> Paternal. <laughs> it was the uh, apical vertebral rotation. And it's funny, we, I mentioned my mentor, Dr. King, earlier. And I, I, I could almost hear him saying this because uh, I'm pretty sure he would have, he would have been all over this. But uh, the rotation of the apical vertebra uh, mm-hmm. was the biggest predictor. I wish they'd had Sanders data. And, you know, not, now that we worry more that if you don't really keep bracing them till Sanders eight, till they're pretty skeletally mature, they might keep progressing. So that would have been a nice addition, and we don't have that. But just uh, sort of a, a word of warning, I, keep an eye on that I rotation. I don't want to sidetrack this too much, but sorry, what was the the study um, design? So it was they just looked, they had patients that they just treated and they just looked at them 25 years later to see who had progressed. And then they saw what factors. Correct. And it wasn't a ton of progression. Um, you know, I think they just looked at about a five degree difference. So it wasn't earth shattering or anything. Um, but I, I think it brings up a nice point that that vertebra, that rotation may be, maybe the most, uh, important factor. As a, as a non-spine person that I wouldn't have guessed that, but it does make sense because that's really what the brace doesn't do a great job of controlling. As much well, as we'd like to say I, that you can control that through the ribs, I don't know that you really can. You know, I think that you control that just as much as you control the coronal plane. So it's interesting if you took, since these are all 3D deformities, but I mean, if you took an x-ray instead of the normal AP in the lateral, like we all take, and we define the whole curve by this, if you just took it like at some oblique plane where the curve was maximum, I mean, that's going to be different for everyone. But I mean, the AP and lateral is a fake construct that we've all kind of made that doesn't really define how bad a curve is. And so, I mean, you see these kids with the same sort of curve in clinic and you bend them over and some of them have like 20 degrees rotation and some are like seven. And, and you just know one curve is way different than the other. So I am not surprised to hear that. And I, I do think that they're totally different animals and there needs to be a lot more work done in this, the role that 3D imaging and understanding has on all of our kind of basic understandings of spine pathology and natural history. Yeah, totally agree. Some of that work out of San Diego with uh, Peter Newton is, is really uh, sort of leading the way. And obviously we have a long way to go, but some of the, those 3D EOS images that they uh, portray in their studies. And then they show that, you know, it doesn't look that bad on the lateral. Then when you rotate it to where it really is, it's, you know, the whole thoracic spine is lordotic. It can be pretty dramatic in those rotated spines. So with the information that you've read so far in this article, would it change your practice? You know, if there's someone who has like a shocking amount of rotation on Adam's forward bend um, and they are close to the surgical threshold, then I think it does make sense to watch them uh, a little longer when you stop the brace. If they're not going to get to the surgical threshold regardless, you know, if they're a 28-degree curve, I don't think it's necessary. I think it kind of validates the idea that, you know, you have to consider the third plane and whether it's surgical decisions or bracing decisions or even like initiating bracing. You know, if I've got a 20-degree curve but the scoliometer reading is, you know, 15 or 20, 
um, that may make me feel like bracing that patient a little bit earlier, being more aggressive. Um, so I think that all kind of plays into the fact that rotation matters. Yeah, that's a great point. Next up, we've got a uh, JPO study from WashU. It is entitled Analysis of 280 Magnetically Controlled Growing Rod Lengthenings, Comparing the External Remote Control Readout. In other words, how long does the remote control say you lengthened it? To radiographic measurements, specifically x-rays in this case. They looked at 66 growing rods, and that was 280 total lengthenings. And they found that the um, remote control, if you just look at the readout on the, the motor, or rather on the magnet device, it overestimates the lengthening by 15% compared to x-rays. So that's right in line with some other previous studies, which had shown anywhere from about 14 to 50%. They found the discrepancy was a little bigger in larger patients, which you know makes sense. It's a little harder for that motor to to stretch out the bigger patients, maybe. Um, the interesting thing, and the area that this was different than previous literature, they found it didn't change between the early lengthenings and the late lengthenings. You know, I was sure that after you lengthen for a while and the spine starts to get stiff, and as other groups have suggested, as the motor stops generating so much force, you would get less lengthening with the, the later efforts, and they didn't find that. So that was a, a, an addition to the literature that was kind of curious. You know, if it's 280 lengthenings, but 60 patients, then we're talking like average of four, five, six lengthenings per patient, right? Yes. I mean, that's all like within a year plus. Well, it's 60, like I, yeah, okay. and it's 66 growing rods. Okay. So oh, it, okay. Yeah, you know. so it could be even. I, I guess my point is that I feel like that law of diminishing returns really takes over when you have stiffening of the spine because of the instrumentation. And in the course of maybe a year and a half, maybe you're just not seeing it yet. Although it's 66 rods and 280 sounds like a lot of lengthenings. I mean, that's potentially just 33 patients, right? So maybe it's just not big enough numbers to pick up on that. I don't know. It, it all depends, I guess, on how, how many times you keep trying after you start losing some ground. But it seems like there's something else, something out there we haven't figured out yet. Last up is uh, another JPO paper. This one's out of the Greenville, South Carolina Shriners. And it's called Surgical Outcomes for Severe Idiopathic Toe Walkers. It was 26 patients, and they were all almost all bilateral cases. And overall, um, in these severe idiopathic toe walkers who failed non-op, they had good results with surgical treatment of idiopathic toe walking. Uh, the question I would pose to the group is, do you think you'd do better with Zone 2 or Zone 3 lengthenings? You know, all the way down in the Achilles tendon in Zone 3, or like a volpius in zone two with the, where you're getting a differential lengthening of the gastroc and the soleus. Did the, you mean did the study show better? Yeah. Would you expect better one? results? Yeah. Which one would you expect the, the better results with? And, you know, it's, think, a, it's a gate lab study. It was pretty thorough. Ooh, ooh. Dr. Lane, you want to kick us <laughs> off? <I'm laughs> uh, so I would say if you're looking for degree of correction, uh, you probably get the most in zone three. But then I would worry about, you know, weakness and overcorrection. Being a Gillette, we treat a pretty large neuromuscular population here, and we are very conservative in our uh, calf muscle lengthenings and, and do a lot of strayers here. And I'll admit in my practice, I haven't seen that many idiopathic toe walkers that have needed surgical intervention. And I know that idiopathic toe walking is not the same as neuromuscular toe walking, but it would make me a little nervous to just go after zone three, although I'm, I would guess that you would probably get the greatest impact. 
Yeah. So I think you brought up all the right sort of considerations. And it sounds like the authors and my expectations for that matter are the exact same as what you said. You know, there'd be this risk of over lengthening and weakening because that's what we all read about and worry about with cerebral palsy. And interestingly, they found that that did not play out in this population. They found uh, excellent results with zone three lengthenings. No one needed a second lengthening. No one collapsed into a crouch gait. And on the other hand, with zone two lengthenings, about 25% of them needed an additional lengthening. Again, there was no over-weakening, but a quarter of them needed another lengthening. So the authors recommended, when in doubt, uh, go with zone three and maybe don't have quite so much fear about over-weakening in this idiopathic population like we do in CP. Now, you know, 26 patients, you can only make of it so much, but I thought that was an interesting finding. Yeah, just make sure they're not diplegics <laughs> before you call them idiots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, I would yeah, expect great. a typically developing child probably not to go into crouch, but I just would worry about weakening them. I was going to say, I worry about that as well because I think about, you know, the athletes. I've seen some athletes who come in as toe walkers at 10 years old, but their parents say they're like great at sports. And I'm like, I don't want to take away your ability to jump. And so I have been maybe more conservative with a, with just a recession, a zone two with those patients. You know, I do think there's ways to do the zone three. Like if you're doing it open and you are controlling how much you stretch them. So you get enough to get the dorsiflexion where you want it. I think the real issue with the overlengthening is like if people are doing a perk sort of thing and they're pushing really hard to get it to slide and all of a sudden it gives and you're in 40 degrees of dorsiflexion. I feel like that's when you have that major overlengthening issue. But I, I feel like there's ways to do it um, open and controlled to where you can get the correction you need, but not not do more than you intend. Yeah, I think you're right. Especially if you cast them in neutral, make sure you don't accidentally cast them in dorsiflexion and let them heal overlengthened. The authors may have had some, um, I don't know if bias is the right word, but they probably came into this much more cautiously than the old papers that showed the overcorrection in the CP population because just like us, these authors were probably quite concerned about overlengthening and creating weakness. So they were probably pretty darn careful to err on the side of Aquinas and did they, uh, rather did they, than Calcaneus. Did they brace afterwards just because I think what you do afterwards is so key to preventing recurrence? They did. They casted for three weeks, then took off the cast and fit AFOs, and then put on a new cast for two more weeks, and then transitioned from the cast to AFOs. And the AFOs were worn for three months and then allowed to be weaned. Because I feel like there, there, I saw a recent meta-analysis said that the rate of recurrence in idiopathics is something like 50%. Um, I mean, that's obviously all comers and you know pretty heterogeneous post-op protocol, but that makes me brace all these kids until their parents take off the braces and see that they're not walking on their toes anymore because there's that behavioral component that started yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. I do the same. I give them all hinged AFOs and tell the parents if they're walking on their toes, put these on for a couple of weeks and then you can try. And if they stop walking on their toes, that's fine. If not, give them a couple more weeks and just keep doing it until they stop walking on their toes. And then interestingly, they sort of talked about a few cases at their institution um, with combined zone two and zone three lengthenings. And I thought I, I was interested in this because that's something I've done in a couple cases where I've done, you know, either a zone two or zone three and then realized, you know, maybe the silver scold is corrected, but they, they're still in Aquinas or maybe the Aquinas is almost corrected, but they've still got a positive silver scold. And then I've added the other zone. And um, they said they'd done that a few times. They sort of said, try to just do zone three based on their outcomes of the study. But I was curious if anyone else has 
had cases where they felt like they needed to do a zone two and zone three, you know, if there's a true contracture, but also positive silver scold? I haven't, but my volume on uh, on this kind of patient is pretty low. So, so I guess I haven't seen that exactly. Um, I mean, I guess I've just had one or two cases where, um, and I can't even remember which I did first, but I'm, I probably did like a zone two. And then got um, better motion, and then you know the silver scold was then negative, but they were they still didn't dorsiflex all the way to neutral. So then, like I, there wasn't enough stretch exactly from the zone two. So you know from the volpius or whatever one did up there, and then went down and did you know probably would have done a, a Z lengthening with just a little bit of additional zone three lengthening. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that makes sense because if you're trying to get, you know, four centimeters out of a differential lengthening at that level, you're just overstretching those muscle fibers so much. That probably can't be great for it either. You might as well get a little bit out of the tendon too. I don't know. Dr. Lane, any thoughts on that? So I can't think of a case of idiopathic toe walking where I've done that. I mean, I would say that like in the diplegic CP population, which we've all acknowledged is very, very different. You know, if we do our gastric recession, you know, strayer, and then maybe strike the soleus and you still don't have the correction that you want, then maybe consider some like interop Botox. But that's about as far as I'd go with a kid that was diplegic. I have to admit, I just don't have the clinical experience with the idiopathic toe walker to, to comment on that exact scenario. What was their negative outcome? They ended up being weak. They didn't have any cases that went on to weakness. They had uh, about a quarter of the zone two lengthenings needed a repeat lengthening at some point in the future. Oh, sorry, but when they said they had to go to two levels, they oh, they didn't. They just they didn't really go into detail. That wasn't part of the study. They just sort of mentioned in the discussion that they'd had some cases where they'd had to do that at their institution, not included in the study, and they just sort of said. Based on the study, we're going to try really hard to just get away with zone three, basically. You know, it's so funny that one of the most common pediatric orthopedic procedures that we all still have so many question marks. And I mean, I, I think the most recent thing, the, the thing that I have used and shared with a lot of my learners recently is a Delphi consensus study about, you know, when it's appropriate to do what zone of lengthening. And it's funny that that's the best evidence we have is level five stuff on a lot of when, when each lengthening is appropriate. It's bewildering. Yeah, I feel like my residents are always surprised when we do these and we start talking about it and they're like, oh, oh God, there's all that stuff that goes into this little procedure. I thought we were just going to make it longer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was supposed to be easy. Stop pimping me. <laughs> the case that we'll talk about today is a, a six-year-old male, a little bit overweight, who played Superman off the bunk bed and has a displaced lateral condyle fracture that's quite a big fragment, rotated 180 degrees. So patient came in, was admitted, taken um, in our trauma room the following day for open reduction internal fixation. Pretty classic lateral approach, very big traumatic rent that led directly to the fracture. Kind of the more surprising thing to me was that there was very little soft tissue attachment. It was basically stripped 100 and, well, 360 degrees around, and the fragment was literally spinning, which uh, actually made it quite difficult to reduce because it was so unstable and it didn't actually tell me where it wanted to go. You know, after getting it reduced, my question that I'd love to kind of chat with everybody is, you know, in a, in a pretty big six-year-old with a really big fragment, would your first choice be screw fixation uh, or would you pin it? Spoiler alert, I pinned it. And my protocol is to take the pins out at four weeks um, and then recast them for two more. My biggest concern, which I really laid crepe with the family 
um, is with that amount of soft tissue stripping and that significant of displacement that there is a real concern for AVN and physeal arrest. And we discussed a little bit about what that means down the line for the kid first follow up and then potential surgeries down the line. So I guess in, in your guys's hands, anybody can speak up, but what are your thoughts about fixation for a large fragment like that? And then if you've had any experience with a, a patient with a piece that has been quite significantly stripped, what's been your experience with AVN or Fisial arrest? Sounds like a yeah. tough case, Julia. Thanks for sharing. I would say that fixation wise, I mean, I, w- I was trained with only pins. I would say that now I've been using screw fixation increasingly, but I but I still say that I'd use the majority of mostly pin fixation. In the older child, like a six-year-old, I would be more likely to consider a screw. I would say in those two and three-year-olds, I still feel more comfortable with pins. And then also in the cases where you just don't feel like you are getting adequate compression with the pins or you feel like you have a lot of instability, then I would say my my threshold to put a screw on has decreased over recent years. I can't think of a case that has been um, as stripped as what you're describing, but I absolutely agree with you having a very serious conversation with family about AVN and then continuing to, to follow them. Dr. Lane, I've pinned things by default as well. Um, I feel like I've been, I've reserved the screws for if they have a delayed union or something, which I haven't had happen yet. So that's why I'm probably still sticking with pins. Um, but as someone who's done that more, are you going back to taking out the screws? That's one question. The other question is, what is your screw like trajectory and placement? Like Because when I'm putting pins in, I'm spanning that fracture side at two, sometimes three locations. And with the screw, you're kind of doing one. Are you doing like a screw augmented with pins? Screw remains, but the pins come out. What's your, if you do go with screws, like what is your kind of protocol? I mean, I I remove the screw relatively early. I certainly want to know that it's healed, but, you know, somewhere in kind of the four to six month range. Okay. And then with with the screw, I try to kind of get good metaphyseal purchase and then kind of go obliquely up that lateral column and try to get a good purchase. I can't think of one case where I still didn't feel like I had enough stability with the screw. So I did put in one buried pin as well. And that was actually within the last month. So I'll have to get back to you on how that patient. I think I would do the same thing. I think I would pin it if I felt like it was reduced and the pins were holding it compressed across the fracture side. The only thing I would add is that, Julia, I'm just not surprised at all that you had this 100% stripped uh, fragment because you seem like a magnet for this kind of case. I'm remembering they seem from, to find me, yes. Do. I'm remembering from fellowship a case where the radial head was completely detached and floating in the olecranon fossa when you were on call. Yes. Yeah, that was terrifying. I still have PTSD from that. <laughs> I actually was there that day during that trauma conference. You were. We were visiting. That was a courtesy conference. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this poor fellow is presenting this case of the radial head in the Lecranon Fossa. And I think everyone in the room just had kind of their, their heart sink thinking about how, how tough that case must have been yeah. overnight, too. Yeah, exactly. It was. It you was got a perk, right? Was that what uh, happened? Oh yeah, I used the I used laser surgery. It, it did great. <laughs> yeah, that kid a, actually a life of pediatric trauma surgery. Yeah, exactly. Or pediatric trauma surgery. Yeah, and that kid actually amazingly did quite well. I don't know how it healed, but it did. Um, and at least while I was a fellow, which doesn't tell you much, because I think I was only there for another six months or so after that. But um, didn't get AVN while I was there, so. 
who knows? Amazing. Um, yeah. So this, I actually just did this lateral condyle case a couple days ago. So I'll, I'll, I'll update you on how he's doing. I was happy with the reduction once I got it uh, in place and I, I used three pins and I was pretty happy with the compression with that. And so I had screws available as a bailout, but I was pretty happy with pins and, and went with that. But I'm pretty worried and I'll be definitely anxious every time I see him on the clinic schedule for the next three, three to six months. So. I was going to ask, what was like the, the sleeve of like the extensor wad and where was all that? Was that there and you repaired it back down or? Yeah, just- I repaired it back. It was just completely blown off. It was like this sad little string of unidentifiable tissue that was holding that piece. It was almost like I couldn't figure out which way to flip it at first yeah. because it was so far out. Yeah, um, normally that shows you where to right where yeah. these lateral is right so i was happy to have my my headlight and my awesome np helping me that day because it was it was kind of tough but uh interesting and something that hopefully not very many people have to deal with but uh, lateral condyles are always a little bit fun to discuss would you say at your institutions you're seeing an increasing rate of screw fixation or would you say it's mostly pin fixation across the board i would say the majority of my group pins i've pretty much only seen pins from my group at unc i'll have to let you know about Vanderbilt. Yeah, I think we're all doing pins primarily also and then just reserving the screws for non-unions. But I do think that you're right. I think more people are moving towards using screws a little bit more commonly. And I know there are some groups that use screws almost entirely. So I I think more to come on that. I'm I'm part of a multi-center study that we're just getting going on a prospective cohort for these comparing fixation. So hopefully we'll have some answers on that. My guess is it probably doesn't matter as long as you get a good reduction and fixation. When I Related, say I probably uh, use pins like 80 to 90 percent of the time and I definitely have colleagues that are using a screw probably the majority of the time. Yeah. Carter, just since we're talking about lateral condyles and soft tissue stuff, I vaguely remember a time in fellowship where Uh-oh. did you do one prone? Yes. Did with, you do lateral with, condyle prone? With an like, attending whose name I... I <laughs> <laughs> A lateral condyle prone or medial at the condyle prone? No, it was a lateral. There's based on some study that showed that described doing the posterior approach in a way that you could preserve the blood supply, um, which made made a ton of sense. I mean, it did seem like if you're careful about it, you don't need to strip it. And it was indeed a very easy way to do it. Um, Just like seeing, you know, an adult fracture posteriorly down the posterior lateral column, right? Yep, and getting your read there. Just went slow, only elevated periosteum right at the fracture site to get the read, and then just put the pins in um, from the lateral uh, position where you would normally. So, I mean, I do think that makes sense if you're if you're conscious. You know, I assume it was at some point when all of the old studies came out, people were just not worried about going to the back and then stripping. But if you go to the back and you don't strip, probably fine. That said, I haven't done that since starting practice, but <laughs> I think it makes sense. Well, thanks for the case, Julia. I promise the rest of us will start doing interesting things that are worth discussing. That's fine. I, I tend to have a potpourri of fun trauma things to discuss at any given point. So, and now, Is it safe to assume that for every stripped lateral condyle or disvascular arm that you see in this month period, you've also treated many kids who are doing wonderfully? And yes, <laughs> I, I do see occasionally practice. some bread and butter stuff oh, too, I promise. Fun. All right. Well, good to see everyone. Dr. Lane, thank you so much for joining us for the night. This was fun. I learned some stuff. Thanks for having me. This was great. Yeah. And thanks for doing this. This is fantastic. Thanks for all you're doing. Pleasure seeing everyone again tonight. Always fun to catch up. Definitely. Stay warm out there. All right. right. Thanks again. Until next month. Bye, you guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Dr. Lane.